Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I'm speaking with Helena again. Hey, Helena. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So, okay, like we spoke last time a bit about you starting your transition and then detransitioning. Yeah. And then you've become, I mean, I know you, even last time we spoke, you were, you were vocal about it, but like, it seems like you're getting more vocal, but it also seems like there's more urgency to it. Yeah. So if you want to talk a little bit about that, like the stuff with the detransit, I'll give you an example of why I want to get into this. Like we have a new law coming in or it's being proposed in Canada. And I mean, I've heard Canadian politicians say stuff like, oh, detrans is an, you know, is a far right myth or a right wing myth. Yeah. And I mean, these are politicians who are going to be voting on this stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, if you wouldn't mind just going just a little bit on that, then we can go from there. It's so unfortunate how many politicians, I mean, like we all know that politicians don't really know what's going on. Uh, (laughs) That's kind of been um, a constant in politics where it's just like these people who are so out of touch with what's really going on um, and they, they get all of their influence for, for their opinions on policy and, and where they're going to go with policy based on um, just like polling and, and lobbying and stuff like that. So they're very out of touch, but with the trans issue specifically, it's just remarkable how little politicians know about the actual issue at hand. And you'll just so commonly, even a lot of the times Republicans here in America, you'll just hear them parroting kind of the trans activist talking points. And it's very concerning because there are, well-founded critiques of the various aspects of the trans issue, whether it's sports, whether it's the medical aspect. Mm. Um, There's some very well written, thought out by professionals, medical professional critiques. Um, It just seems like this information isn't getting into the hands of politicians or they're just ignoring it um, because it's easier to just support it. But um, yeah, that's, that's very concerning. Um, I have noticed that that is getting worse. Um, There's just been, on one hand, there are more efforts now, I think, to push back against this, but I think those efforts are just showing how entrenched it's become. Yeah. And I mean, okay, like you mentioned some of this stuff, like how they're not going looking and things like that. So I heard you speak recently, you were on with uh, Buck Angel and you're on Andrew Sullivan's um, podcast and you talked yeah. about how, uh, you know, with detransitioners, they're like, Oh, you were never really trans anyways. Mm-hmm. And that for me, like kind of clicked with something with like Islam. It's, you know, if you say you're an ex-Muslim or you're an apostate, they're like, Oh, you were never really Muslim mm-hmm. or you didn't study enough. Oh, go read these books, go speak to this person. Yeah. So like, can you get into that a bit? Like how the identity plays with it? Like, you know, like another kind of aspect of it is like if, if I say something like, okay, I don't think children should transition. I don't think you should men- medically transition ch- kids. Like you can support them, whatever, but no drugs, no surgery. You get the thing of your genocide on the trans identity or something like that. You know, like, so if you wouldn't mind talking about that a little bit. So I think it is very similar to like a, um, a religion gone irrational, like a religion gone too doctrinaire mm-hmm. or even a cult. Um, and people use that word a lot. I'm not sure if it quite, it doesn't quite fit the definition of a cult, but there's those dynamics absolutely um, to where when you're in the belief system, it's very clear what the rules are and what everybody is doing. Um, and there's this, um, there's a worldview that everybody has a gender identity 
And all you need to do to find out your gender identity is just look inside yourself and it'll be there. And you're the only person who knows your gender identity. You're the only person who can discover that gender identity and communicate it. And if you communicate your gender identity, nobody is allowed to question it because it's held to this, um, it's very religious in, in how this concept of gender identity is used to define the origin and the, the very fundamental makeup of who we are as people and what our purpose is on earth and like how we interact um, and, and what is, it's just kind of like a soul almost, like it's like this ethereal concept of the gender identity. But then once you follow the logical pathway that's set out in the belief system that, okay, if your gender identity is something other than the one that was assigned, quote, assigned to you at birth, the ritual, I guess, pathway that you go through in this community and in this belief system is that you medically transition a lot of the times. There are some exceptions where people don't medically transition and they still identify as trans, but a lot of the times it is kind of like it's it's very much associated together that if you have this transgender identity, you're going to transition. And then you run into this part of the story that doesn't really get talked about where you do the transitioning and then you realize that the concept, this idea of gender identity that you had to define yourself and to look at yourself, it was very flawed. And your self-definition and your identity is actually a lot more than just gender identity. And that this idea of gender identity has actually taken you down some paths that have led to some very negative consequences. And you start thinking and you start maybe even regretting. For a lot of people, there is a lot of regret because they've got health issues. They've got problems with their families that have been exacerbated. And there's just a lot of these very negative consequences and people start thinking like, has any of this ever been true? And then so like the belief system kind of falls apart and then they exit the community, they detransition. But the community's response to that is not to really look at what was this process that this person just went through? How did they go from someone who was such a staunch believer, someone who used the frame, the framing of gender identity to define themselves? How did they go from that to now completely renouncing it and disagreeing and regretting their transition? Nobody looks at that. It's just, oh, you did it wrong. It was your fault. You didn't think hard enough. You weren't you didn't understand yourself well enough. You just wanted to be special. You just wanted to fit in. You were a trender. That's another word that they use. So it's always kind of, it's okay. your fault. Okay. You did I, I, just, I just got to interrupt for a second. Sorry. Sorry. Just wanted to interrupt for a second. Yeah. So if someone goes through surgery and everything, oh, you were just, I mean, okay, I'm sorry. Like that's a pretty big commitment at that point. And if you're just, I mean, I don't know anyone who would yeah. do that for a lark, you know, like, you're, you know, like yeah. it's not, it's, I, I mean, it's, it's a pretty good, like, um, okay. I, you know, my people might freak out here. I'm just sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but like, what do you, the people who go blow themselves up, you know, for ISIS or whatever, and I'm not trying to equate these people to ISIS. It's just like, I'm trying to think about like a very, you're taking a very extreme thing there when you're do, put, performing surgery on your body like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. They believe they have absolutely no doubt. And if you listen to people who do de-radicalization, they say, you know, like one of the biggest things you can do is just put a little bit of doubt. Like you don't need to convert them. You don't need to make them atheist. You just need to have enough of a doubt that they don't want to kill themselves and other people. They can believe yeah. that that's all right. Yeah. They can believe it's all good. But so that's what I mean. Like, you know, to, to 
like have like big surgery and like take hormones and all this and have all that done to your body. I mean, it's not, it's not like a light step, you know, like, like, I don't understand that. Absolutely. And this also gets a little bit weird because on one hand, like if you would have gone up to, I don't know, 13 encountered this stuff and asked me do i want to chop off my breasts mm-hmm. i would have been like no like that would have been a very terrifying thought to me and now again it's a very terrifying thought to me i i'm very thankful that i did not have a mastectomy um but if you would have asked me at like 16 17 years old i would have been like desperate for it mm-hmm. so on the one hand it is it is something that you have to have this zeal for like your your way of thinking has to be completely changed for you to want to do something that previously you would have found so repulsive and that at your core you find repulsive. Um, but on the other hand, then you have the clinicians and the activists actually playing it down. Like there's a pretty big named clinician. I don't know if you've heard of her, Joanna Olson Kennedy. She works at the UCLA Children's um, Transgender Department. She's the head of it actually, I believe. Um, and she gave a talk she gives these talks often and they're always filled with gold of just like absolutely preposterous, evil, horrible nonsense. But she gave a talk back in like 2018 where she was addressing the pushback that she was receiving on um, sending 13 year old girls off to get mastectomies. And she was saying, she basically said that it's not a big deal because any girl who gets a mastectomy, if she regrets it, she can just go get new ones put back on. And so that's kind of the attitude that these intense surgeries and procedures are are taken with in the medical community right now. So on the one hand, yes, I agree that you have to be very almost radicalized to want to do that to your body as a person, but you're also being pushed there and you're being fed information that is misrepresenting the options that you have and what the effect and what the severity of those options are. Okay. Um, now is that how, like, I know there's new curriculum out in Canada in several provinces mm-hmm. um, and it's uh Soji one, two, three or something like that. So it's, and you know, some of it's okay, the majority of it, when you read it, at least on the surface, it sounds just like, you know, sex ed, it might be a little bit younger and okay. Obviously, you know, but like, but then you get into the gender stuff and you go like, there was one little girl in kindergarten. I, I know this because I got spoken to the lawyer. Uh, she was told because the teacher said, here's the spectrum. Where are you boy or girl? And she put it all the way end on girl. And the teacher said, there's no such thing. And like berated the kid and the kids like it's little girls in kindergarten. Uh-huh. You know, that's scary. Like that's, you know, it's not. Um, yeah, of course. And so the, the parents are suing the school. They're like, well, what do you mean? You're telling my little daughter, there's no such thing as all girl. I mean, if it, like, that's where I don't get mm-hmm. it. Like if it's about looking at yourself internally and, you know, finding yourself or whatever, like finding your gender. And this little girl thinks she's a girl. Okay. She's whatever kindergarten, you're five or six. So she probably hasn't had a lot of introspection time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she said what she said and, Let's see what happens. Right. But for that teacher to say that, like, is it in school like that? Or like with you, I guess it was 
maybe like I don't know online or social media or whatever. But like, how does like right now is it is it spreading through school or do they like you have to still do it online or like where is it coming from? I think definitely the schools are becoming a huge problem. When I was in high school, it wasn't like this, at least not in my school district. I feel like I lived in a pretty, not super conservative, not like Bible Belt, anything like that, but not a super liberal area either. Um, So I was kind of spared from that for the most part. I did encounter like my school guidance counselor who was very pro-trans. And like when I talked to her about it, um, she was very pro me transitioning when I was still like 17. Um, and then my school therapist was also very pro-trans, but we didn't have, as far as I was aware, at least I never went through any kind of teaching like this. Um, we never had any programs like that, that, you know, would teach the gender spectrum to us as kids. I definitely didn't have that when I was younger because I went to a Catholic school, but, um, yeah, but I, I do think that that's becoming a much larger issue, especially for the young, young kids, there's a lot of school districts where it's just, they're teaching completely, not just age inappropriate, but just false and emotionally manipulative material to young kids who don't have a secure foundation in themselves or of what they believe or what's true in the world. It's very hard to know that as a kindergartner. Um, So I, I think that's absolutely reaching critical mass. Um, But then you also have the online influence, which is very, very strong. And even if a kid doesn't go through that kind of schooling at school, um, they'll find it online if they're in the right places. And I think as opposed to when I was younger, when those right places were a lot smaller, for me, it was just Tumblr. Um, And I know that this was popular on Twitter somewhat too, but it wasn't as pervasive as it is now. But now it's just like, if you go anywhere online, whether you're on Tumblr, Reddit, Instagram, whatever, what have you, it's all going to be this one straight narrative about trans stuff. And if you, you know, if you are vulnerable to these kinds of issues, like these body image issues and this obsessive thinking um, and, you know, wanting to become someone else, these kind of factors that lead someone to become vulnerable to this, you will find your way towards those communities that support um, the gender identity way of thinking. So, um, another thing I want to issue. Yeah, I was I want to ask you about like the family and, and like if there's anything I'm you know, like I ask you that's too personal, please let me know. But it's like if you're leaving. Okay, so if you're leaving a cult, or I mean, like a, in the case of leaving Islam. Um, you know, you'll have family members and stuff saying, Oh, look what you're doing to your parents. Look what you're doing to your mother. Look what you're doing to your family. Um, you know, it could ha- hurt the prospects of your siblings. Cause if they're, it's no longer really arranged marriage, it's more like matchmaking. So it could hurt the prospect of, you know, some of your siblings getting a good match because, Oh, there, you brought dishonor on your. So like there, there's that one case in Canada where the father is going to prison because he wanted to, he didn't want his daughter to medically transition, which I think is a legitimate, you know, yeah, you know, there, there is a legitimate case there, but now our laws are getting so screwed up. So like, what's the family side of this? Like, it really depends because there's so many different families and there's so many different situations. I've seen a lot of situations like that man that you described in Canada, where it's like the, I'm sorry, but it's usually the mother. The mother gets it into her head that her child is trans. It's not always the mother, but like I would say more often than not, it's the mother who's gotten this idea in her head. 
and the father opposes it and the father you know tries to stop it and speak out against it i even have friends that have been through this personally um where a family met this has happened in other parts of their family or like to a sibling or or something like that um yeah so there's there's that um and that's definitely i can't even imagine that happening to my child um if my spouse decided this was the right thing to do i i like i don't even know what i would do um probably wind up in prison like this guy but um yeah and then there's the other side of it with girls like me who got into it on their own via the internet um and i think that that's a bit more complicated but i do think that there's always trying to figure out how to phrase this um it's a it's a touchy topic but despite the fact that so many parents like they have the best intentions they're doing their best they love their children there's always some element of just a an unstable or anywhere ranging from slightly unstable relationship to just completely messed up relationship between the child and the kid or the the child and the parents um and it's not just one um it's not just one thing that you can generalize and apply to all of these families but yeah, okay. it's very difficult for me to think of anybody that i've ever known personally that was either trans or detransitioned who had a you know above a six out of ten relationship with their parents yeah. <laughs> well i know i mean okay look like you know okay ibram kendi there was a little recording of him saying oh, i'd be horrified if my daughter came home and said she didn't want to be a girl anymore now yeah okay Based that, candy. yeah but that that's you know i'm sure like I, I don't i'm not i don't have a parent i don't have kids but you know if my i'm assuming if you know i had a kid and son or daughter they came and said you know i'm i'm the other thing now or whatever like one of the 72 flavors of gender now i mean like you know it's that's got to be pretty shocking for a parent because i mean yeah a hundred percent. And I have a lot of sympathy with parents. Like I feel like out of all the detransitioners, I've probably spent the most time writing to and talking to parents in this situation. Cause I understand that nobody's perfect. And obviously if your child comes home and starts saying these like very scary things, all the thoughts are going to start rushing through your head. Like, what does this mean? What is my child going to do? What are the laws? A lot of parents are very horrified to find out how easy it is um, for young people to transition and every state, at least in the United States, every state is different, but there are states like Oregon where if you're 15, you can get a mastectomy without parental consent. Okay. Um, that's scary. So like, yeah, if your insurance pays for it, you are legally able to get a mastectomy without parental consent. And so obviously that's horrifying to any parent and not because they're transphobic, not because they hate trans people, not because they're Jesus freaks, not because of anything like that, just because you want your child to be safe and healthy and your child coming out of the blue and announcing that they want hormones and surgery sets off alarms that there's something not right. in a lot of parents, even if they don't have 
you know, the Brady Bunch loving, perfect relationship. Um, so it's so complicated. It just, it just, I've noticed that the worst thing about this is that every family has their problems, but optimally every family should also be able to continue working to build a closer relationship. Not all families, it's, that's not realistic in all families. Some families are just like, they're filled with conflict, but for a lot of families that are, that have a lot of love going around, but just imperfect people sharing that love, um, you should, you should want to keep working towards a better relationship. But this trans stuff kind of comes and throws a wrench in that. And whatever problems that exist in that family, they just get blown up to the max once the trans stuff gets involved. So I think that's one of the most heartbreaking effects of it, actually. But one thing, like, um, you'd mentioned, you know, there's not a lot of, and, and there isn't a lot of, like, counter to it that's readily available. So let's just say, you know, parents, kid comes up to the parents and said, okay, I want to, you know, I, I need to transition. I need to take hormones. Like, if they go, are they just going to be told, yep, your kid's got to transition? Or, like, like what's the... You know, if they go for a second opinion, like how many people are pushing this stuff? How many are actually giving kind of like a balanced approach to parents? Like, where do you go for that? Yeah, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of people that I feel like you kind of fall it, at least with healthcare practitioners or like mental health practitioners, you kind of fall into three camps. You fall into maybe no, you fall into four camps. So you have one, the people who are going to enthusiastically support transition and affirmative care. And that is technically the standard of care because all the major medical associations um, support affirmative care. So that means that no matter what, you're going to affirm the gender identity and make sure that kid transitions um, or that adult or whoever. Um, That's the affirmative model. And then there's the people who, they're not enthusiastic about it, but they're gonna follow the standards of care. And they're going to follow what all the big organizations are saying, because obviously there's research behind that. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're going to either, you know, affirm that or send them off to someone who will. And then you have the third group of people who they don't really know what to do. They feel like they're, they feel weird about it and they don't want to partake in the transitioning, but they don't want to stick their necks out either. So they'll just refer you out to someone else. And then there's a small amount of people who are actually, um, honest and will speak to that family about, you know, getting that child different kinds of care and like mental health care and stuff and, and work to resolve the problem from a more, from a more holistic standpoint. Um, But overall, yeah, it's very hard for families in this situation because so many fall in that first three categories where you either go to an affirmative practitioner, affirmative practitioner, or you get referred to a re- affirmative practitioner because the one that you went to doesn't know what to do with you. So it's very hard. And then even from the standpoint of just finding community, there's so many families like this, especially families who live in liberal areas where the child comes out as trans and all their friends and all their neighbors and all their coworkers and their bosses and everything support the trans identity of the kid. And the parents are just stuck there being like, oh my God, I don't hate trans people. I don't hate anybody. I'm not a bigot, but I don't think my daughter's trans. But all of their friends and their whole neighborhood and their whole, just everyone in their life 
starts to think that they're abusive bigots because they won't affirm the gender identity of the kids. So it's very disruptive to just all, there's not a lot of resources for these families. And it's so pervasive how little the research, the resources are. Okay, I mean, again, like we're getting a law in, in Canada. I mean, we already had C-16, which was made it, criminal to misgender someone and you know blah 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 that's why you had yaniv jessica yaniv asking people to shave her balls um but now you got the new one where it says you know anti-deconversion therapy bill which most people are thinking like electrodes to gay people and this and that but it says you yeah. have to affirm the gender the new gender of the person right so yep Uh, like okay so then in your case if you had gone and said you know what i don't think this is right for me anymore like there are a lot of doctors who are worried that they can't say like the few that you said you know that little small group that want to push back against it they're saying Mm -hmm. well we can't suggest anything to this if someone comes in wanting to detransition we have to still affirm their new gender identity which is i mean like, you know, I don't think that would be like, you seem happy. You seem, you know, you seem okay. Like, you know, I've seen you in interviews and stuff. Like, you seem fine. I'm like, would that have hurt you more if they had to, if they just kept affirming your thing? Like, how would that have worked? Like, I mean, that's what I'm trying to figure out now. Like, yeah. Um, Sorry, I'm just going to rant. Like, again, with Islam, like, I see it with people who convert. In about five years, a lot of them just leave or they become religious they stay religious and they they adapted a little bit but in that first five years in that first five years they're like look at me i'm the most muslim person ever you know and so you know obviously again you know i don't want to say that you know like again you know getting surgery taking hormones all these are big steps i'm not saying you're doing it on a lark but are you so caught up in that thing and that was first little while and that's when you and then after that five years it breaks off and then yes you know, I'm sorry, but like there, the, a four or five thousand percent increase in young girls transitioning in like a space of a few years. You know, people are like, oh, well, it happened. You know, you know, gay kids, and it's like, yeah, but it wasn't a four or five thousand percent increase. There's still only about two or three percent of the population that's gay. You know, like it's yeah, like it's um. There's sorry, sorry to cut yeah, you no, off. go ahead, yeah, go ahead, please. Like, cause you got me thinking with the comparison to Islam and like, obviously disclaimer, there's so many differences, blah, 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 but, but there's absolutely a fervor in that first, that first, um, I don't even want to call it a honeymoon phase because I think it lasts longer than a honeymoon phase, but especially with the transitioning, because I don't know how it is in Islam, but in a lot of these, um, like manipulative, ideologies i don't really want to use the word cult but like in a lot of these kinds of fervorous religious ideologies there's kind of a a a stepping pathway so you start off somewhere at the bottom and then you continue working and working and learning and working until you get to this supposed 
magical place at the top. Like that's, you have that with Scientology, for example. Um, I don't know what the comparison would be to Islam, but with the trans stuff, it's kind of perfect because you have this fervor in the beginning where you think that this is the answer to everything. This is the answer to your problems. This is the answer to the world. This explains humanity. This is what, this is what we need to do to fix the world and all of its problems, make everybody happy and make everybody love themselves. You're so convinced of this. And on a personal level as well, you have the transition that you are embarking on. So you have you yourself now, the person you don't like, the person who you don't like your body, you don't like how you look in the world. And then you have that goal somewhere off in the distant future after all of these magical hormones and surgeries. And you're kind of scared. You're so convinced that this is the right thing and that this worldview is perfect. And that if you just follow this road, no matter how scared you are, each step you make is getting you closer to that eventual goal. And a lot of the times with each step people make, they feel conflicted and they feel afraid and they feel a little bit of doubt and they feel a little bit of fear um, or regret even, but they don't listen to that because they're so convinced that at the end of the tunnel is going to be this almost like salvation moment that they've been working for. And then eventually it gets to a point where they've done so many steps and they've gone so far and the, salvation that has been promised to them is not coming it's not getting closer it's only more far away but the doubts are piling up and the regrets are piling up and the negative consequences are piling up and that's when people begin to be very disillusioned so i don't know what the comparison would be to islam well in islam it's it's more like okay converts are you know they they, if someone leaves they don't exist they don't want to talk about it but converts are you know, they're like, oh, how can you, you know, he, he left Islam. He just always talks about it, blah, 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 blah. But if someone's a convert, they, oh, used to be a Christian, used to be this, used to be this, that now it's Muslim, but white converts, especially. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, okay. It doesn't take much to become a Muslim. You just have to say like, uh, so I, I just became Muslim again. Right. Like, <laughs> like that's all you have to say, really. That's technically yeah. in front of a couple of witnesses. That's, that's Congratulations. it. Yeah. Um, but. <laughs> You know, usually like they'll, they'll, there'll be some courses like, you know, you know, let's say you're a woman, you've met a man or you're a guy, you met a girl and you'll speak with the family. You'll go to take some courses. You'll, you'll convert. And during all that time, it's, you're given the whole Islam is a religion of peace. Oh, women are equal. Muhammad was the first feminist, like, you know, nice sugarcoated stuff. And, uh, yes. and again, like, you know, whatever, not all blah, blah, blah. But in a lot of cases, especially with women, they find out afterwards. It's like, okay, no, it's not all wine and roses. Like, you know, I've got to wear a hijab. I've got to do yeah. this. And I've, you know, I'm especially like if it's someone who's grown up in a very strict Muslim household or it's come from a strict background, you know, even if they won't, don't make the woman wear the hijab or something, there is a thing of, you know, like the 1950s, you know, family mm-hmm. life like cook the dinner i come home there better be a drink waiting for me and you know like obviously if it's muslim it's not alcoholic but you know like that kind of thing like you have to cook you have to wait on me hand and foot so there is that attitude as well and so that's with a lot of the women i've spoken to it's usually after kids are born and one of them you know like she talks about how she, like their son had been circumcised and when her daughter was born her husband was talking about getting her daughter have fgm done and she's like, no, I'm not. And that's when it clicked her. Like, I got to get out. So wow. there is something that clicks because 
what's promised at the start doesn't always come out at the end. And once you do convert, yes, you know, converts are given some little bit, but you're still, you're just another part. And if you're a woman, it's, it's worse depending on where you're going, especially like if you're going to, you know, like religious things at mosques, you're going through the back door, you're, you know, everything's separate, everything's segregated. It's yeah. It's so yeah. I mean, that's why I said like within about five years, you know, a a good chunk of them get disillusioned and leave or they become very, very, they're still with it, but they, they're not as into it, which, I mean, it's harder, you know, it's kind of harder to be like, okay, well, I'm not quite as trans anymore, even though I've had all this surgery. Like, it's not, you know, it's, it's, that's where it's different, right? Like it's, you know, in your case, I mean, it's, it's either one or the other. I mean, once you start and you stop, I mean, is there people who find like a happy middle ground there somewhere, like where they started like medically transitioning or something and then they stop, but they're still part of the community somehow? Like, is there something there? Uh, I would, I wouldn't call it a happy middle ground. I'll call it an unhappy middle ground. Cause I know that there's, there's some people like that who kind of, they either flip back and forth where one day they hate the trans community, hate it all. It's patriarchy. It's blah, blah, blah. And then the next day they hate the rad femmes and they hate the gender criticals and they hate the detransitioners. So they flip flop back and forth. And that's obviously kind of a sign of, you know, something's really going on. Um, and then there's also people who, again, an unhappy middle ground where they've gotten hormones, they've gotten surgeries to the point where there really is no detransitioning possible, especially with like, um, you know, genital surgeries, like there's nothing you can do to get that back. And a lot of them have been on hormones for, you know, over a decade. And it's just like, there's no matter what they do, even though they no longer see themselves as trans. They understand their trans identity as being a symptom of, you know, a lot of the times it's trauma, like childhood sexual abuse. Um, They understand what this really is, but the physical reality of their body is forever changed to the point where they cannot go back. Like they can't go back a decade in the past and stop themselves from doing anything that they've done. So they'll kind of just continue living as a trans person and they'll accept being interpreted as a trans person. And they'll accept, you know, like a a woman who's been through this, just accepting that people are going to think she's a man for the rest of her life. Um, They'll just kind of accept that reality, even though they very much regret it. Now, like again, I'm sticking with the Islam thing. Like in around, like you know, I don't know the exact date because I wasn't in North America at the time. But I'm going to say like around 2006 or so, 2000, somewhere between 2004, 2006, Ayon Hirsi Ali became really vocal, and she was one of the first ex-Muslims. Mm-hmm. And it was oh, there's no such thing. It was you know they denied the existence of everything. And around 2013, 2012, like small groups started forming in. North America and Europe and places. And again, they, they still denied it. Then they, then they laughed and now they're worried. And actually like, you know, in the last couple of years, there have been groups like care that have held conferences about what to do about ex-Muslims. Yeah. So um, do you see that kind of stuff with, you know, like people who are detransitioned or someone like, you know, like someone like, you know, who just, who real, like, and I don't want to say realize that, they were like, like if you've gone through that whole thing of medically transitioning and then, you know, you find out that 
kid that wasn't really me at that time like i mean like are are, are you is there ways for you guys to get more vocal now? Like, I mean, like, is, is it, do you find it a little bit easier than like even a couple of years ago or like, is it still hard? Like how does it, how's it working? Oh yeah. So just in my personal life, um, mm-hmm. my Twitter account just exploded <laughs> less than a year ago. Like um, back in June, I think of 2020, I only had like 3000 Twitter followers and now I have 14,000. So like the interest has absolutely skyrocketed in this, which means that it's getting more attention and people are starting to realize. And I think part of that is just from detransitioners like myself being more vocal. Um, But I also think that's other people being very vocal about it. And then I think it's people having this happen in their personal lives like they have a daughter or a niece or something like that or they they see the the gender ideology being taught in schools and they're like what the hell is going on so they try to look for people like me to try to explain this stuff actually ironically i reconnected with my cousin that i hadn't spoken to in like 15 years since i was a little kid because his friend's daughter started identifying as trans and he just went and was like googling and stuff and found me um so yeah there's people who Definitely the interest has skyrocketed. And I think there's more people who would have been too scared to have someone like me on their podcast or, you know, retweet someone like me on their timeline a couple of years ago when it was still kind of like there wasn't as many detransitioners. It's like these people may have had their doubts about the whole trans thing, but they didn't want to stick their neck out but now it's like the problem has gotten so big and there's so many detransitioners and just the rhetoric has gotten so insane and the problem has become too big to ignore so i think people are becoming more brave and um, giving more of a voice to detransitioners because they can see how bad and how dangerous of a problem this is like i don't want to keep you too 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 long here but i want to ask you no, no last i want to ask you a couple of last things like if you wouldn't mind like discussing some of the harms, I mean, like, you know, let's forget the surgery because that's extreme, but like some of the harms, like the hormones and stuff and what, especially when you're talking about puberty blockers and you mentioned like, you know, like we can talk about people like detransitioning now. And so when it's like a four or 5,000% increase, yeah, you know, even if a quarter of them detransition, that's a hell of a lot of people. Like, I mean, are doctors looking at lawsuits here? Or like what's going on? Like the one with Kira Bell, like, like, you know, is, are you going to be seeing more of that? Yeah. I really hope we start seeing that in America In America. It is harder because we live in, I have a friend who describes it as just all of America is the wild West when it comes to this trans mm-hmm. stuff, because we don't have an NHS. All we have is like basically the only private practice or like hospitals mm-hmm. and stuff, but that's tech, that's private practice. Um, So it's just like you sign a legal contract. Every time you do hormones and surgery, you sign a legal contract that within the the frilly flowery language about how this is going to save your life, it admits that we don't know what we're doing. There is not a lot of research behind this. If you get fucked up, that's your liability. So you actually sign something like that. So it's really hard to sue in America. Um, But I, I really hope that people will start suing I've spoken to some lawyers before and it never really went anywhere. And I feel like just from a legal standpoint, my case is probably a bit egregious because I never got any blood work. Um, I, I was given my testosterone on the first visit, even though on the website of this clinic, it says that you need to come back for follow-up after your blood work. 
Um, they put a fake diagnosis on my medical records um, for like insurance purposes, but I don't know the legality of that. But yeah, I just feel like the fact that I didn't get any blood work was yeah. But I mean, like, um, but nothing ever came, came of that. But I mean, okay, you know, you, they say you they make your son a contract, but if it's an organ, it could be someone yeah. as young as fifteen. Sorry, but like a contract. I, I, again, not a lawyer or whatever, but I thought if you if you're if you're a minor and you signed a contract, it was null and void unless your parent was there. So, uh, I mean, not for medicine. Yeah, but that's not I, for medicine. You have yeah. a medical age of consent, and that's originally to prevent like Jehovah's Witnesses from preventing their children from getting health care. Yeah. So children can consent to health. Well, fifteen and up can consent to health care, but they've just broadened this to include the trans stuff. Like, again, I'd like to talk about like some of the harm that the, these things do, but I mean, one of the things that they're giving to puberty, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, like luporin or something like that, isn't that like something they give to give to like, you know, chemically castrate, you know, like severe pedophiles or something like that? Like, isn't that like a severe drug? It's not, I may be wrong. I feel like I would mm-hmm. know this though, but it's not Lupron, the brand name drug, but this class of drugs is called mm-hmm. GNRH inhibitors. It okay. inhibits the hor- the gonadotropin releasing hormone, which is what causes your puberty to start. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it inhibits that. And there's a class of drugs that does this. And the original purpose for this class of drugs in general, not necessarily Lupron as a brand name, but this class of drugs in general was to um, chemically castrate pedophiles. So that is true. Okay, so like... <sighs> Or gay people, ironically. Yeah, 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 also gay people, yeah. No, but giving this stuff to kids, like, again, I'm just, you know, if, if your little boy wants to wear a dress, I'm just like, whatever, let your little boy, I mean, yeah. that's that's kind of like, you know, as I was growing up and then maybe like when I was became a teenager, that was being more like, it shouldn't matter that your little boy wants to play with dolls or your little girl wants to play with cars and trucks. Let your kids yeah. do what they want to do. And you know, if you want to be a tomboy or if you're whatever, if, like I said, if you're a boy, like I don't want to, if you want to say it's effeminate or whatever, there's no male equivalent of tomboy. So I don't like you. I don't know what you'd say, but like, they're like, let them do it. So like, I don't see why if your little boy wants to wear a dress or your little girl is more of a tomboy, you let them do that. You let them do whatever you want, but then this push towards it. And, you know, when I hear about young kids getting like, you know, drugged up like this. I mean, first of all, like, I don't think you should give kids like, I think, you know, little antidepressant lollipops. They give little kids now, basically like that's bad enough, but you know, like, but this, like, you're, this is worse. Yeah. I mean, what are you doing to their bodies? Like, I mean, if you yeah. have, if you know, like, I mean, like, obviously, like I said, you know, neither of us are medical professionals, but at least, I mean, if you could talk a little bit about what those harms could do. Yeah. So I think, One thing that people often point out when it comes to not only the puberty blockers, but to cross sex hormones in general, is that there is not hardly any long term research. And by long term, I don't mean two years. By long term, I mean decades so that we can know what's going to happen to your body decades down the line if you're taking cross sex hormones or puberty blockers. We don't know that. There's no research into that. But what we do know is that your body makes hormones 
in the amounts it does and at the times it does for a reason because your organs need them. Your body needs these hormones. They're not there just to make you look a certain way. They're not there just so that patriarchy can decide what to do with you. They're there because they're biologically necessary for your development and your body. And so we do know that. So despite the fact that we don't have long-term research, we know that hormones are important. So that's just one of the most infuriating and upsetting things for me because people will just say that it doesn't matter. They're reversible. It's fine. Puberty blockers are reversible. And I don't think that's true. First of all, we do have some studies in animal models about um, issues with IQ. And I believe we have human case studies too, not full studies, but case studies of young boys treated with puberty blockers who actually dropped IQ points. Because wouldn't you know it, the hormonal processes involved in puberty are very important to cognitive development. Um, but yeah, so we do know that. And um, we also know that women who were treated as young girls for a condition called precocious puberty, that just means when you start puberty earlier than you should, which also is caused by a variety of different things and should be treated a lot better than it is, but that's for a different conversation. Um, we know that these women, when they grow up after being treated with Lupron for this condition as children, they grow up and they are very likely to experience severe bone and joint issues. So just chronic pain, osteoporosis, arthritis, all these different things. And um, yeah, there's articles about this. There's Facebook groups where they come together and, and they talk about all of their issues from being prescribed this drug as children. So we do know that it's not reversible. And I, I just don't know if, them, if these doctors think that, oh, just because this person has a gender identity that makes them immune to osteoporosis, but I don't think that's true. I think all bodies are going to react in similar ways. So yeah, we, we know that. And then with the cross-sex hormones, I think both for men and women, it's dangerous long-term, but I think for women, it's a lot worse because women already have more complicated hormones than men do. And we already feel the ramifications of our hormones being out of whack a lot easier than men do. Um, so, and we have more sensitive reproductive organs that rely on our hormones being healthy. So, and this isn't like rocket science. Um, we've known that we need good hormones for good health forever. So yeah, it's just ridiculous that this is just goes out the window, just decades and decades of medical knowledge about the way our bodies work goes out the window when it comes to gender identity. And that just goes back to this religious fervor that it has along with it, where knowledge and rationality is just out the window it's like the cherry pick everything and again it's okay you, you mentioned the you know the, the girls who get puberty a little early so they give them this so they'll take that one fact and say see it's been done and it's been done for decades yeah and it's like okay but it was designed for that not for this and it was designed for a short period of time and blah 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 but it's it's the same thing here like they'll find um Okay, I'll give you something, a very, very stupid example here. Uh, sure. They got some gamma ray bursts from outer space and it was like 72 gamma ray bursts or something like that. And I was making a joke and then someone took it up and said, oh, that's the 72 virgins in heaven. And I was just making a joke about it. Like, you know, like, and someone's like, anyway, so like, this is obviously taking a stretch, but they'll find something. Yeah. Or as soon as anything's discovered, They'll go back and they'll look in the Quran and say, aha, I see the Quran predicted this you know, mm -hmm. 1,400 years ago. And it's like, 
oh look they took this medication it's it, it's working it's like again I, I just don't understand like i know there's people like uh well i mean deborah so and abigail schreier just wrote their books i know colin wright's working a lot of uh you know writing a lot about it right now but uh there's there's a guy up in canada as well Cantor, i think his name is i forget his first name james um, Cantor. yeah and i mean like so there are some people but like is it just because it's being pushed by phds that the medical establishment's not looking or is it money because i mean obviously like you know you know i i think in in terms of the medical establishment i think mm-hmm. there's probably you know all sorts of financial interests there's like activist mm-hmm. infiltration that you know there's all sorts of ways that activists can take over institutions um and also just the power of media pressure, the power of social media pressure, all this kind of stuff. But in terms of just like your average doctors and your average people, I think a huge problem in this is that this actually is an extreme humanitarian crisis. This is a civil rights issue, unlike anything we've ever seen before. And for people who don't know a lot, I think they can intuitively feel that, but to accept that this is happening and to actually look into how horrific this really is, it's, I think it's too much for them to bear. And it would require, it would be like for someone who is just unaware of culture war issues or like sides with kind of like the left Mm -hmm. on, on a lot of stuff, if they were to truly reckon with what's going on with this trans stuff, I think it would just be too much like, would just blow their minds and make them question everything they know and, and just shatter their worldview. And I think a lot of people aren't ready for something like that. And so they just go along with it because they think, no, it's not possible that it's actually this bad. The experts know what they're doing. This is what, this is what we need to do is right. Plus all the kids are going to kill themselves if we don't do this. So there's like, there's all these things piled on that just make it impossible for people to look at it and see it for what it really is at this point in time. It's like, how can you accept that there's something this abusive and horrifying going on in your country? Yeah. I, I just, well, I mean, I, that with you there, I agree. It's, you know, I see it with some of my friends and it's like, Oh, what are you going to do with your kids? Like if you, you know, and it's just, just even with people asking legitimate questions, like, you know, about puberty blockers. And then it's just, Right away, it's like, how can you deny your kids or their yo know, kids commit suicide? This and that. It's like, yeah, you're. Uh, it's a guy, a book called "Kindly Inquisitors," and I mean, he called it a humanitarian threat. Yeah, and that's what it's what it is. It's like you're pulling on your heartstrings. You know, it's the same thing with the racism. Like, don't you want to be anti-racist? Like, you know, don't you want to fight transphobia? And it's like, yeah, you know what? People, everyone deserves the right to live like a human being. Everyone deserves the right to be, you know, have their dignity. Everyone. But at certain things like kids transitioning, I think that's got to be treaded very, very lightly. Mm-hmm. And there might be, you know, like kids with severe dysphoria and things like that, that it needs to be done to. But again, that should be a careful process. Like you're, you know, like I can't, well, I shouldn't be able to walk into a doctor's office and say, yeah, I don't feel right today. Just cut off my arm. Like, you know, the doctor should question that. I, yeah. I, I don't know why this isn't being treated like the same way. Yeah, me too. I mean, this that's kind of how I always put it. Like, I don't support transitioning for minors ever. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are a full grown adult, and I mean like an actual adult, not just some 18 year old in college, but if you're a legitimate adult, I wish you the best. Mm-hmm. But 
for children. I absolutely don't support it in any case whatsoever. And I think it's ridiculous that that is as controversial as it is, because if you see a child presenting with any kind of mental health issue, I think we can all agree that the best thing to do is to be compassionate with that child, help them explore what is going on in their minds, get them taken out of any dangerous situations that they're in, um, and help them to develop a strong internal sense of security, regardless of whatever outside factors might be upsetting them. I think that's what we would optimally think the best way to approach a child who's struggling is. I don't think the best way, even if they're struggling really deeply, even if their dysphoria is really, really bad, even if they're suicidal, you treat the suicidality, you treat the depression, you treat the focus that they have on their body. Why are they blaming their feelings on their body? Um, and, and you treat it that way. And I think that should be for every child. You know, no, I, I get it. Like I said, you know, again, I, you know, I, I have not, like, I, you know, I've looked at it a little bit and I've looked at a few things, but you know, like I said, like, that's why I said it, like, it should be treaded on very, very lightly and it should be done very carefully. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I'll defer to you there, <laughs> but you know, I, I gotta, I just want to ask you one little silly thing before I wrap this up. Sure. Women, women in sports. I was just thinking about this the other day. Yeah. Now let's just say you accept that like all their premise of trans women can play in women's sports i'm like okay but what about so like you have you know male female so you got trans women like you know men women so now trans women are women so that's you've got two of the genders covered now what about the other 70 right you know like like so if you're gender fluid you're a woman every time you're going to play sports i mean like okay and i don't want to again i don't i don't want to make light of like you know people here but to me that sounds like hysterical like gender trans, you know, transitioning, you know, like hysterical blindness where you're blind. Like there are people who in certain conditions, they can go blind or whatever. Like they, they, they have something afflicting them. I'm like, like, how does that work? Like, I understand, like I said, if you want to accept that premise, but what about the rest of it? Like, you know, yeah. Like, how does that work in there? No, I agree. And I don't, I don't really know what the end game is supposed to be here because you're right. If, trans women belong on the women's team and trans men belong on the men's team. What about the non-binary people? Cause wouldn't that be transphobic against them to expect them to play on the men or the women's team? Because that's not their gender. So then what do you do? Do you have a non-binary team? But what about, you know, the people who identify as a gender are they, do they have to be on the same team as the people who identify as tri-gender? That's a completely different thing. One person has three genders. The other person has zero. So how are you going to make them play on the same team? If you're going by their worldview, how are you going to make them play on the same team? And does this mean that we are just going to have infinite sports teams? Well, what if there's someone who wants to be an athlete, but they identify as a gender that nobody else on the planet identifies as? So then how are they going to compete in sports? What are you going to do? Like, what's the end game? Yeah. I mean, like I like said, it's just, I, I, okay. I, I had a conversation and this was before COVID and we got all locked down and everything. It's, in Montreal, I've been in lockdown since like like everything's pretty much been shut since last March. Um, but I was just at a pub, and we, we I used to go to this pub on Monday nights to play cribbage, which is an old man's card game. Um, and there's someone who like there's woman who came to the pub and Joe played with us sometimes. Or whatever, and we're talking just just before everything got shut down, and the topic came up, and I said, "Look, you know, I don't know a lot about it. I've read." 
blah, blah, blah. I've read Butler and I've read Rubin and I've read, you know, like some of the gender theory. And she said she identified as queer or whatever. And I tried to get her to explain to me how Pete Buttigieg was a man who slept with men, but wasn't really gay because he didn't embrace his queerness. I tried to get her to explain that to me. And I said, just don't, I said, just do it in plain language. Don't use jargon. And I mean, she started laughing near the end of it. I'm like, I'm not saying like I convinced her out of her, but it's just like, if you ask someone that with this question, like, would they get upset at you? Would they freak out at you? Would they say I'm making fun of it? Because I mean, like, honestly, I'd like someone to give me an answer for that. Like, how do you figure out all those other genders with trans women and playing women's sports? If I think back to myself when I was in like the queer worldview, I think I would have just like shut down and gotten offended. I don't think I would have been able to really think about it and provide you with an answer. I think I would have just been like, oh, you know what you're doing. You're just trying to trip me up. I'm bigot. <laughs> okay, that, that's another thing. You know, it's, it's, it's always, oh, you're using right-wing talking points. Yeah. Oh, you're, Islam- you're yeah. Islamophobic. Oh, you're a racist. Oh, it's like, yeah. no, I'm not. Asking serious questions. Anyways, thank you very much. This was great. Uh, if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, uh, and like that, and I'll put in the description. Yeah, for sure. Um, my Twitter is, it's a little bit of a weird one. It's pronounced LaCroix, but it's spelled L-A-C-R-O-I-C-S-Z. It's like a Polish spin on LaCroix that I made up four <laughs> years ago and just haven't changed because I don't know what else to say. But that's where you can find me. I like to tweet. Hey, all right, cool. Well, thanks a lot. And I'll let you know what this is coming up. And thanks everyone for listening. Awesome. It was fun. Bye.